time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome everyone to episode 41 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Aaron, and along with my co-host Patrick, we are happy to be talking about the second film in our Nolan Month series, the director's major film debut, Memento. Aaron, this is one I've been looking forward to for a very long time. It's a film we've both watched many times, and it never ceases to amaze. Hopefully we can remember what it is we're talking about long enough to have a good conversation. Well, don't worry, Patrick, because I have tattooed our notes all over my body. And let me just check and see. So fact number one says... Start by talking about what we've been up to. Huh. Well, I guess that's easy enough. Maybe it's important. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it's important? I think it's important. I I think we both think it's important. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. So, man, this has been fun. You know, I I love being able to talk about Nolan movies, and uh, they present unique opportunities sometimes because of the twistiness of them uh, to Mm -hmm. play off of that uh, via jokes and puns and things like that. Um, And last week was a real blast starting off with insomnia, even though we got insomnia and memento backwards (laughs) in our chronological (laughs) order, but you know, it makes sense sense because we're doing memento. Yes, actually we did it on purpose. Listeners, we did it on purpose. (laughs) Stamp Um, it. We did it. That's true. But yeah, so, you know, what you been up to, man, this last week? Well, I'd love to be able to tell you, but I but I have this condition. See, it's it's just no, I don't actually. <laughs> <laughs> this week has been has been really fun for me. I, you know, we were talking about um, our favorite films of 2016, and um, Sing Street's been on my mind. I've been listening to the soundtrack randomly, and there was a there was a a a message on Facebook or a post on Facebook. One of our listeners had talked about watching once or no watching begin again and kind of comparing it to the other two and i realized you know what i hadn't seen once yet like i'd finished two of the three what i call the carney trilogy and i wanted to go ahead and check it out i wanted to see okay what's the buzz about this movie it was his first film um talking with you and you know independently you'd said it's uh easily one of your favorites and uh that like Certain movies, it, quote, wrecks you <laughs> because of just some of the intensity in it, of the emotional themes. And so I popped it in. I watched it. I loved it, man. I wow. absolutely just – and it it was just – I mean, it didn't it, – it surprised me, and it got me just emotionally stirred. And uh, I remember kind of processing it and going – Man, this is this is a great movie, and it's right on par with his other two. But it's interesting because I realized that all of his movies, all three of these movies, are so different mm-hmm. from each other. I mean, obviously a different plot, but they use different types of music. They have a different setting, a different circumstance, um, different emotional impact. But at the same time, there's this incredible passion that exists in all of these characters. And there's this theme of just going after what you want in spite of your circumstances or because of your circumstances. 
It's about what real love is, how it can be unconventional, how it can be messy, how happy endings don't necessarily have to be what a love story is about. And sounds like you're talking about La La Land. <laughs> Again, at some point, this thing will get <laughs> this thing will get watched. Uh, my, my wife, my wife, and I are are definitely wanting to see it. And so, if we can find the time between my son being sick and trying to get some, you know, scheduling going around, we really want to catch it in theaters. So every <laughs> you keep plugging it, man, and we'll keep <laughs> I'll keep I'll keep making semi empty promises. It's you know, as much for the actually. listeners as it is for you. But anyway, car- carry on back to Carney and once. So. I, I listened to the soundtrack um, independently of, of the movie after I'd watched it, and I just kept listening to it over and over again. And there were certain tracks that I would just put on repeat, you know, just, you know, it would end and I'd restart it, end and restart it. And I began to just see how much I love discovering music for the first time, uh, particularly soundtracks, how they resonate with me how they connect me to a movie, but I just, I love connecting with them in a way that it feels like a new relationship. It feels like you're <laughs> like that, that, that moment that you start dating someone and you just want to spend all your time with that person and you just can't get enough of just being around them. And it's, I, I didn't want that feeling to end. I feel like I'm going to taint it by just listening to these things over and over again, because in any kind of thing, relationships or music or whatever, the newness kind of wears off, but I haven't gotten to that point yet. And so I'm not completely distraught <laughs> at this music, but I, um, I really, really enjoyed this movie. And what I want to do at some point when I have time is to watch the other two, like, well, sing, sing streets up there. I've already, I've already seen it recently. So I need to watch begin again, again, mm-hmm. and see kind of how they rank. I don't think anything's going to beat the top spot. I think Sing Street's still going to be up there. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a close second <laughs> for for once and and Begin Again because Begin Again was the first Carney movie that I experienced. So there's something kind of valuable about that for me. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm excited to revisit it and Begin Again again <laughs> and <laughs> all of it's <laughs> i'm gonna keep doing that because it's just funny to me i don't care if my listeners don't like it but it's i like cracking myself up anyway but uh yeah i have i've had a great time i even tweeted the uh the director writer himself and said dude i just i love your stuff i love the magic you bring to film and you know i don't know if he, he didn't tweet me back so that's okay Wait, i just i felt like are you getting john carney on this show is that is that the plan <laughs> that's the plan in my head well, make it know? happen it's going to be Let's a memory it. that well, it'll be a short term memory probably because it probably won't happen. <laughs> but it's, it's, <laughs> that being said, that's what I've been really kind of doing this week. Well, that's good so, stuff. Uh, you know, yeah. I think I'm going to, when I get done with the current backlog I have of podcast episodes, uh, when I finish up listening to those, I think I'm going to make a point to play the one soundtrack at some point over this next weekend, because it is, for me it's still my favorite carney film uh, it's slightly better than sing street in my for me i would say and it, you know largely because i think i gravitate towards love stories i'm a i'm a hopeless romantic at heart i'm an emotional guy and um you know the the man and the woman aspect of you know sing street as much as it's boy and girl coming of age um you know it's it's almost as much about 
the things around his 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 entire life, not just boy meets girl. That's, right. that's a portion of it. Once is right. much more direct in its you know relationship is a bigger bigger star of that film, mm-hmm. and uh, and frankly you know the songs for me songs are key in musicals and uh, and movies that have music. This was a big argument I had recently about uh, whether or not Sing Street was a musical. Uh, spoiler alert: It's not. It's it's not. And, it's not a secret. It's not. And and I don't care that John Carney calls it a musical. In fact, somebody somebody threw this John Carney quote at me, where John Carney was saying, even though it's not got the typical tropes and uh, trappings and, and and techniques that you would see in a musical, it's kind of like a stealth musical. And I was like, no, that doesn't make it a musical. That makes it not a musical. <laughs> like, so I tweeted a picture of my bagel and I said, this is my burrito. It's a stealth burrito or it's a stealth. I'm sorry. It's a, yeah. I was like, this is my burrito. It's a stealth burrito. I know it looks like a bagel, but it doesn't t- it taste, doesn't taste like a bagel, but it, you know, it's a, that's what it is. So anyway, point being is that, um, once for me falling slowly is such, has such a place in my heart and has such resonance and, and relatability and, and history for me. I mean, I remember videotaping myself <laughs> singing that song in the car and putting it on mm. YouTube for some unknown, ridiculous reason. But I, I loved it. And, and so I have yeah. that history with it. And so for me, once it's always going to be up there. Yeah. It's a, it's a simple story. And the, even down to the characters, I, I, the cast list, I saw the cast listing. It said boy and girl, they didn't have names. Right. You know? And I was just, what? And I think what made it great for me was you had this simple story, simple characters, and it let their passion come out. Like that opening sequence of the guy just singing, you know, in the streets and just how passionate he was with his songs. Uh, anyway, this is not a podcast about once. <laughs> it's not an episode about once. That's so. okay. That's okay. That's what we do. We recommend good film and films that make you feel. That's what we do here. And, uh, yeah. and you know, and that's part of it. Musicals and, and movies about music have been growing on me as well this last year we've seen so many good ones mm-hmm. and it's just become a genre that i'm you know it's it's up there it's it's in my top two or three genres things that i look for it's like oh it's a musical i'm going to see that that's going to be prioritized heck i just bought the criterion uh collection blu-ray of inside lewin davis uh, and i'm gonna oh, be, wow. i'm gonna get to watch that again this weekend for the first time this criterion edition and all the extras and you know, that's a film that's about music in a lot of ways, but it's not a musical. Um, and it's, and I just, I just love it. I don't, and I don't know why, because I am not a musician. So it's not necessarily an art form that I relate directly to, but I, I, I think, I think it's because I now understand the artistic passion in a different way than I ever have in my life before. And so maybe in that way I can relate, even if it's not the exact same type of art that I'm right on passionate about, but right on. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. So what have you been up to this week? Enough about me and enough about Carney. There's never going to be enough about Carney and his trilogy for me, but never. what about you? What about me? you? Well, you know, so I'll start with something I did tonight. Tonight I did a, but I'm da I can't do a drum roll documentary double feature. <laughs> I watched, wait, hold on. Uh, wait, whoa, 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 back the truck up. What did you just say? Uh, I tried to do a drum roll with my, was, no, 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 no. After that you, you did oh, you, you, a what? documentary double feature. 
This is Aaron this is, talking, right? Yes, this isn't this, is, this isn't Patch. No, okay. this is this make, is Aaron. Aaron watched. I know we're talking Memento, but I didn't know if we were switching roles or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am encroaching in your favorite uh, genre here, and you know, man, I watched a couple of doozies. Um, the first one that I watched was called Command and Control, and this is a little known doc that came out last year. Um, it was on PBS, I believe. You can find it streaming on PBS through something that they have called like American series or something like that, but it's online and you can watch it for free. And the story of this is back in 1980, uh, we had these Titan II nuclear missiles and they were the most powerful nuclear missiles in the world at that point. And one of these silos was in Damascus, Arkansas, which is just you know, a couple dozen miles away from Little Rock where you and I grew up and lived most of our lives. Uh, well, you, all of it. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, I didn't know about this, but apparently there was an accident where this silo blew up and this nuclear missile they truly believed was going to go off. Like Arkansas almost was evaporated off the face of the earth in 1980. And I didn't even know about it. It's crazy. I even I even texted my dad during the film and I was like, "Hey, Dad, do you remember this?" And he's like, "No. What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "I well, I think you would remember if there was like a nu- nuclear scare, you know, 50 miles from where you live." So, apparently, the story basically boils down to um, some maintenance was being done. Uh, someone dropped a, a tool. <laughs> the tool falls a very very long way, ricochets in just the right manner, punctures the fuel tank on a nuclear missile starts spewing fuel into the silo and it's all about the scramble and the way in which they handle this, the, uh, the, the damage that was done, the lives that were impacted and, and lost uh, the injuries. And it's just, it's a, it's an incredible story and something that really makes you shocked that we haven't had one of these incidents actually happen and and, and hurt us. Like we haven't had a nuclear missile go off when you see some of the practices that are in place for these silos and how they handled them. You'll be amazed. And you just be like, Holy cow. It is a miracle, literally a miracle that we're not dead. Um, and it makes you kind of worried to be honest with all of the, the nukes that we have out there that, I mean, my goodness, man, all it takes is one little accident and th- those things go off. Holy, holy moly. So very, very fascinating. Uh, documentary yeah, yeah something i was not expecting that one uh it's it, that was kind of one of those were you were you ones. blown away oh, oh man no i was <laughs> i can't even i can't can't do this um yes i was blown away patrick i'm gonna put my mute button on now <laughs> Ooh, breathe breathe okay um so the second doc moving on is uh one of the what's what is considered one of the best films of last year uh, it's called tower and Tower is incredibly unique. It uses a rotoscope animation style mixed with historical footage to tell its story. And like a Skinner Darkly? Very okay. much like, yes. Actually, that's exactly the film that I thought about when I was watching it because that's okay. kind of the, the way the characters are drawn into the scenes and then it kind of integrates some historical footage. It's just, it's it's a real technical marvel to behold. Okay. Um. And this one tells the story of the 19, I believe, 66 
shooting, Texas Tower shooting on the University of Texas campus, where a gunman went up into the clock tower and just just let loose and started killing people. Um, the the other thing on top of the technical aspects of this film that the other big draw is that it does not focus on the gunman at all. It's a very unique perspective for a documentary and things that we don't usually see. And instead, everything is from the perspective of the victims or the survivors, the heroes. Um, in fact, we don't even hear the gunman's name until maybe 10 minutes until before the end of this movie. Uh, we never see him. They never talk about him. They don't, you know, other than one brief news clip that they read, like I said, at the very end, they don't focus on his motives, his reasons. It's not about him and what he's doing. It's about the bravery, the selflessness, the courage, the, the, the fear. Um, and sometimes the coward cowardness of, of some of these people who, who are very make, who very openly admit, listen, they say, you know, listen, he was shooting. I should have gone out there to help, but I couldn't risk my life. I wasn't going to do it, (laughs) you know, and they're very blunt and open about that. And so it was a, it was a gut punch to watch. Um, I've been saying between this film and Manchester by the sea and a monster calls and a few others, movies that came out in 2016 have probably made me cry more than any year I can remember. It has just been emotional, uh, which is great for us because that's, you know, kind of the, the focus of this show is, is the feeling aspect. And of course other emotions work as well. But anywho, my point is uh, tower great documentary. It's on Amazon prime. It's rentable. It's also rentable on iTunes. I will not be surprised at all. If you see this listed uh, come Oscar nominations time. So uh, worth, Fantastic. worth checking out, but be ready uh, for the heartstrings to be hit. So tower tower, just tower, just tower. Okay. Yeah. I'm writing that one down. Please do. And then, yeah, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to hear about the Damascus one because you know that's just sad to it's me. Too close to home, man. Too close to home. <laughs> literally too close to home. Like literally, yes. I don't uh, want to go down <laughs> that road to Damascus. You know, I don't want to. Well, oh, that. you know that's the name of my church, Damascus Road. Anyway, um, <laughs> woo, sidetracked again. Last thing before we get on to Memento, though, is I wanted to briefly talk about what I'm doing. That's that uh, for the beginning of this year the beginning of the year is always a great time to start new film challenges. Uh, sometimes we start them and we don't finish them and that's okay. Sometimes we start them and we do finish them and that's awesome. And this year um, I'm embarking on several. So the first one is there's myself and uh, some other fellow podcasters and, uh, and a mix of listeners of feeling film who are attempting to work our way through Hitchcock's filmography. Now this is a huge task and I don't know if we're going to make it. I hope so. Uh, but we're starting in chronological order. And so I've been introduced to some of the first ever silent films I've seen. And it's just, it's incredible. Uh, just getting to, it's like I'm having a film education. And then also seeing how far back Hitchcock was Hitchcock. Like in the very beginning. It's kind of like watching Nolan's first movie. What's it called? Uh, the Following? It's called The Following? Yeah, fo- following. Just Following. Yeah. And like you can see from his very, very first attempts at film where he got to what he became with the, the way he makes movies, the, the style and Hitchcock is very similar. So it's been a lot of fun doing that. Um, I'm also, I have another buddy who's 
local who were doing, I'm calling this list movies with Todd uh, because <laughs> Todd and I decided basically we're going <laughs> to give each other a film and we decided every other week to try and make it doable where we're going to give each other a movie and we're going to watch that one. And so I'm getting to discover more things through him and through his recommendations, things I haven't seen a lot of older stuff uh, and just obscure kind of things. And, and so that's a lot of fun. And then the other one that I'm personally embarking on this year is I'm going to try to get through Emma Stone's filmography. Um, that was going to, that was going to be my La La Land reference for this show. But um, unfortunately I had to make another one earlier. <laughs> no, don't say unfortunately. Just yeah. say you had to make another one. There's never <laughs> yes, anything I unfortunate about I was forced. La La Land references. Yeah. That's correct. Uh, so yeah, so those three things are the, the ones that I'm embarking on. I would love to hear feedback. If anybody listening has something similar, if you're, if you're doing any kind of, you know, yearly challenge in film this year, whether it's a director's filmography or an actor, actress, or, you know, just doing specific focusing on a genre or any kind of goal you have, I'd love to hear about it. I think it's fun to talk about and just, you know, find out how progress is going throughout the year. So anyway, if anyone wants to look us up and talk to us about that, that'd be awesome. Fantastic, man. Love the challenges. Me too. Well, the next challenge, Patrick, is to decipher the mystery that is Memento. Mementos, the memory maker. Wow. I wanted to throw that in there. Wow. Tonight is the night of cheese, my friend. Yeah. If they're still (laughs) with us. I hope they're still with us. (laughs) They could have skipped. It's fine. You know, that's what show notes are for, right? That's true. Uh, you guys can skip the what we've been up to section. I know that I probably should have said that before you listened to it, but you know, next time, <laughs> now you know. So full full disclosure, we are a spoiler show as usual. We will be spoiling Memento if you have not seen it. Do not listen to this episode because you need to go experience it for yourself. That being said, Patrick, what is it like to experience Memento? Well, as a repeat viewer, I would say it brings with it so many new things each time. I Maybe I forgot since the last time I'd seen this, but the, the two stories that are intertwined are going in opposite directions. Um, I recognized that on this viewing that not only were the color scenes going backwards scene by scene, that was pretty obvious, I didn't realize that the black and white scenes were going forward. Like I thought they were more abrupt and kind of out of sequence, but that upon viewing it, I'm going, Hmm, that didn't, that would, doesn't make sense to me. It makes more sense for you to have these like two trains of stories passing in the night and kind of intertwining. But, um, watching it this time for this episode, I got so, many more questions that um, (laughs) some got answered, some didn't. Uh, I saw some more depth of characters. Um, I began to kind of appreciate certain characters that I didn't appreciate the last few viewings of it. And, you know, what's great about talking about this on a podcast is that you intentionally look for things based on, you know, the style of whatever you're, you're bringing to the table for your, for your podcast and so I was really trying to find the the emotional resonance that it had. And for me, the big emotion that stood out to me was was uh, was sorrow and and remorse. Like I really felt that with with Leonard's 
character um, as he's going through this. I began to <laughs> this is this is interesting. <laughs> I think that's what I think that's what Chris Nolan is really good at is creating these this moral ambiguity that causes us to fight multiple ideas about what is right and wrong. So many gray areas. And I think with, you know, Guy Pierce's character, Leonard, who, by the way, I think is a love child of both Brad Pitt and Hugh Jackman. I, um, I can't, I, you know, when you first told me that, I just wanted <laughs> to know my mind was blown and I, I was like, no, wait. And then there was a slow moment where I realized that, <laughs> holy cow, Guy Pierce looks exactly like the love child of old old Brad Pitt and uh, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> it's creepy. It's creepy, but still cool because I I love both of those actors. Anyway, but so I think just you know as an example, I think Leonard's character is a reflection of that this moral ambiguity that exists, and so I both feel a sense of real sorrow for him, and I I feel a sense of pity, <laughs> and I feel sense of vengeance for him and justification and there aren't a lot of directors or movies that cause me to feel that way about a character or about a movie as a whole so i really i really kind of gravitated towards that in this viewing that's awesome it's interesting too because those are not the themes that i picked up on this viewing and i i too have seen it multiple times uh, throughout my life. Uh, most recently I watched it, I believe last year, uh, one of my favorite shows po- uh, called popcorn theology did an episode on it. And so I, I wanted to revisit it before that. But this time I picked up on some different things as well. Um, and that was the feeling of denial and Leonard's inability to let go and move on. Um, kind of, hanging on to those memories of his wife, the way that he wanted them to be um, hanging on to the, the love story side of things um, and, and, and keeping those and really using those as his fuel. Almost. He almost has a relationship with these memories of his wife uh, in, you know, it's, it's like, that's his, his girlfriend in a way kind of aspect. And I picked up on that this time and felt that a lot. And I don't know if this is just, you know, because of the string of movies I've been watching lately where I'm at in my life. I love, I, but I think that that is what is the beauty of a film like Memento um, and what great movies, the greatest of movies can do for us is have this effect where it's a different thing that we're getting out of it. We're pulling from it each time we watch it. Um, this time I really focused in also particularly on a scene that I, I had not paid much attention to before. And I don't know if I was just kind of so casual in my watching of it that I just never really thought about the opening, but I really loved the opening scene this time around where it just, it showed me that it puts us in this sense of wonder right off the bat. You see this Polaroid picture fading and it's, it's going back to blank and you know, you don't really realize it at first what he's doing. He's just shaking it. You know, and they're like, okay, shaking a Polaroid, duh, that's what you do, and it's it's slowly Back to the Futuring, you know, itself, <laughs> the picture. Can you wait? Can you? Is that a? Did you just verb make a a title of a movie a verb? I did. He was Back to the Futuring it. <laughs> okay, go yeah, for it. Exactly. 
Go and you know, you. and then and then ultimately, you know, the the picture goes back into the camera, and then that's when we get that first, <gasps> you know, deep breath, like, oh my gosh, moment, mm. like, what just happened? Why is this film going in reverse? And so, for some reason, I had never felt the sense of wonder right off the bat in that moment before, but this viewing, I did, and that was kind of special for me. Yeah, I I I love that scene too because just like with the prestige, he's showing you the end. Like he's, he's showing you what happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And what that tells you is that he's not trying to tell you a story sequentially or at all. He's, well, he's trying to tell you a story, but he's not trying to just give you a beat by beat by beat. This happens and this happens and this happens. He's trying to get you into the frame of mind of this main character of Leonard in this weird kind of, place that he's in these abrupt scene changes you know the black and white mixed with color or black and white mixed with color excuse me and i i you mentioned that first scene but i love there's a similar shot near the beginning of the movie end of the movie oh, we'll th- say those end. words are hard to use with this yeah one. so for the, for the purposes of this discussion when i say the end i mean the end in which we viewed it okay for the audience the end you know near the end of the movie so when i say end that's what i mean or beginning but there's a shot where the picture's developing after he pummels Jimmy. And as it's coming into view, the black and white fades to color, revealing the end slash beginning of the story. Because what we've gotten are visual cues that what's taking place in the, in the, in the one, two, three narrative is in black and white. Mm-hmm. And we know that's at the beginning of the events or, and then the color stuff is, are the, the scenes that are happening, you know, going backwards. And I love that transition, that slow transition, because that's telling us we're quote, both caught up and we're also now in the full moment of where I believe his biggest realizations and the biggest reveals about him as a character and about the movie itself come to light. And it just, it was great. It was a great visual way to tell the story. It was a great, um, you know, narrative way to tell the story and uh and i i love that you have this kind of pairing of those two scenes at least in my head of 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 revealing something you know revealing something at the beginning that is a huge plot point for any other movie but the real important one is that last shake you know that last developing picture of jimmy and everything that came after it right yeah it's it's a work of art, man. It is a masterpiece. And it, it and I don't I don't usually use that word a lot, but you know, this one is so unique. It's something that you you just don't see I don't think I've ever seen it done again. Um I, I don't know that I would want to, to be honest. I, I love that it kind of stands alone in cinema as its own thing. And and that's I mean, how many movies can you say that about? You know, not many. I know that Nolan is working on a script for this, which I believe it's being rebooted and I, I don't know what that's all about. And it kind of scares me. Um, but in Nolan, we trust. So we shall see um, what happens with that. It'll probably be a Cloverfield movie, you know, cause that's what <laughs> <laughs> wrong director, uh, wrong, wrong guy. Um, that would be funny, but you know, I, I do. I love that. It's such a unique and special film that is unrivaled. Um, you know, one thing I want to talk about before we get too deep into our themes too, is just to heap some praise on Wally Feister, who is the cinematographer. So Mm -hmm. this, this was Nolan's first film 
And this was the start of a lengthy relationship between Wally and Chris Nolan. Um, where Wally's always been credited as the director of photography or cinematographer for our terms uh, for all of Nolan's films going forward. Um, he ultimately will win an Oscar. I think he won an Oscar for Inception, which makes sense. Um, but you just you see the brilliance. <laughs> well, we'll get to that one. It's coming a couple weeks. Okay. But um, but you really see the the talent of this guy. You know, we talked about it some about in Insomnia, some of the shots in Insomnia uh, last week in such a subtle way. You know, there's nothing Inception like about the way you shoot Insomnia, but his ability to use and focus on weather and just the way he frames things is so, so well done and so brilliant. And it's really important in Memento as well, um, how he does that. And just, you know, the editing in this film, of course, is, is probably the thing that stands out the most. Just being able to cut these scenes to put them in this backwards order to where it <laughs> it makes sense and it flows and it feels like a, like a, a straightforward narrative is I mean, it's just amazing. It's it's kind of mm-hmm. it's almost like one of those situations where you feel lost for words because you just you can't believe that it actually worked. Mm-hmm. And I and I think that there's something interesting as I was watching it um, when when I bought the DVD, I specifically sought out a special edition that I knew included a chronological cut of things, you know, as they ha- actually happened. And I had a chance to watch that, not recently for this for this episode, but in the last couple of years when I watched it. And Aaron, I've got to tell you, it's equally as powerful because what you're doing is you're getting more of a clarification of this guy's motives. Um, and I think knowing that, I think knowing the ending, knowing the knowing the the story, you get a chance to be less distracted by the events and you really just enjoy the story itself. And that says a lot about a guy who can say, you know, who can, you know, I can be impressed pretty easily. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I don't have like terribly low standards, but you know, most movies are not, you know, a high, I don't have a high bar for them necessarily. But Chris Nolan, I think what he does for me is he, I, you know, you, you joked about it in Nolan, we trust watching this narrative in chronological order because the narrative was still just as powerful, but for different reasons that tells me that a guy can, it's, it's, it's like, I remember in high school reading William Faulkner and how frustrating he was to read because his writing style is so weird and so different. And my English teacher at the time said, the reason why William Faulkner does that is because he can, because he understands how to write. And he can manipulate that. And when I understood that, I began to appreciate his writing style more. And I think that's the same way with Chris Nolan. This is a good story in and of itself. It didn't need to be cut the way it did. What he did was he added this other element, this you know, this amazing element of cutting it in a way to overly emphasize Leonard's condition <laughs> and to make us feel that. And... For this to be his first like feature length film was incredibly impressive. Yeah. Because I think I think it was a playground for him to say, What can I do with these ideas? And then I think he echoed that, as we'll see in these next 
three movies and I'll, you know, I have no apologies for bringing it up again, you know, in the subsequent weeks. So yeah. And especially, especially in inception, I think, I think that's mm. probably the, the most direct comparison, um, thematically speaking or structurally speaking, you know, I want to see that so bad. I've always wanted to, to check out that chronological cut. I need to do that. Maybe I'll do that when I come visit you in the summer. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, but Mike, I'm curious, it, it feels to me like something that would be, you know, what you're talking about getting a lot of enjoyment out of it and extra, um, clarification feels like that only comes as a companion to the film though, because if you, do you think if you were watching it in chronological order for the first time that it mm-hmm. would still be an impactful and, and interesting film? to you no i don't think so okay i think the fact because i think i think the chronological order was a plus one for me it was an easter egg and it was it it really was it was almost like a like a like a like a crib sheet for me because if you if you have a hard time following the story as a narrative which i think you should because it's so abrupt and and it's it's meant to make you feel that way even revisiting it a few times you still kind of get a little you know a little foggy um having that narrative that chronological narrative helps with that and allows you to focus on watching the movie you know as it would as it was cut regularly and focus more on that stuff because you kind of have that backstory of okay i know what's going on now i know what's coming so yeah i think i think it helps but i think it would definitely change how i feel about the movie had i watched the original or had I watched it in its narrative in its chronological order Mm -hmm. um, I think it would have been a completely different experience for me yeah that's that's what I assume as well yeah I would not recommend somebody seeing that first and then seeing it in its like actual theatrical debut I think that's just not cool yeah I don't I don't think that would ruin it ruin your ruin the maximum enjoyment you could get out of it (laughs) and by the way I'm going to say this it takes um several steps on the dvd menu to get to that thing. You have to like hit a certain button. You have to answer like two or three psychological questions the right way. You have to put something in a certain order. I would expect to... nothing less from Christopher <laughs> Nolan. That is, that so makes good. it more enticing to me. That makes it more. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like you got to like put in some work to get to this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I kind of want to approach the majority of this conversation of themes and ideas and emotional takeaways I've noticed, you know, when we were taking some notes on the film that a lot of these things kind of come down to quotes, um, which is always fun. It's always fun to use quotes and think about quotes. Um, But I thought maybe we'd address some of the next few topics by looking at the quotes and then just going from there. So let's start with this one. Um, You know, at one point, Lenny says, the world doesn't disappear when you close your eyes, does it? My actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. My wife deserves vengeance, and it doesn't make any difference whether I know about it or not. So, this is my question to you. Is that a valid statement? And do our actions have meaning, even if we don't remember them? Um, uh, can I plead the fifth on that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, you cannot. It's a, it's, it's a hard question to answer, because... It really is. When it comes to, and it's a good question, you know, uh, we we sort of hit on this with Aurora's character and passengers in writing, you know, writing the article that she does 
and never seeing the results of that isn't valuable to her. Um, and so in that particular sense, there is something to be taken away. And I think for Leonard, it was valuable to him to have that satisfaction, even for a moment. Uh, I, I will answer that question with another quote. <laughs> and it was Lenny saying, he says, Jimmy's not the right guy. This is just after he, I don't know if he chokes, yeah, he chokes him, he kills him. And Teddy goes, he was to you. You got your revenge. Enjoy it while you still remember. And so I think <laughs> for the moment, in the moment that we can experience it, it is a valid statement. But <laughs> if you can't remember it, if it's not part of who you are, if it doesn't make up, if it doesn't continue to change you and evolve you as a character, as a person, it doesn't matter because you've just kind of reset yourself. You've reset your motives. You reset your life or whatever it is. And I don't think it it does in the long term. I mean, if you, if you have no con, con, conscience, no idea of what you've done, then you have no point of reference to be who it to, you know for the decision that you make and who you are now. You know, if I hadn't chosen to uh, go to college, I couldn't use that as a frame of reference to tell stories and to be influential based on my college career. If I didn't remember it, I would just simply be a guy who does whatever it is he does. And so in that case, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I don't think it, it has value, but you know, it's, it can also be argued the other way. What about you? Well, my first reaction to this question is approaching it from a different point of view, which is if we're thinking of it in terms of the singular, how it affects Lenny, how it affects one person, me or you, just my actions have meaning even if I don't remember them. Um, I think that it needs a qualifier at the end of that sentence. I think we need to say, do, does, do my actions have meaning even if I don't remember them? Do, do my, do my action, do my, actions have meaning to me, even if I don't remember them. And Great. I say that because yeah. I think that the, the difference here is it's almost a selfish thing that's going on here with Lenny. Well, it is a selfish thing. It's going, I mean, there's no really way to get around that. It is a selfish thing that Lenny's doing and do his actions have meaning? Well, they absolutely have meaning to the people around him. They have meaning to the quote unquote innocent uh, men that he's killed to satisfy this bloodlust for revenge over and over because he can't remember it. Right. Uh, it has meaning to those men's families, parents, wives, kids, associates. Maybe they're not great people. Maybe they've made some mistakes. Maybe they do drugs, but they get murdered. Why? So this guy can feel good about avenging the wife that he killed himself. Um, that was, that was harmed. I guess he didn't kill her himself, did he? But, um, well, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, the insulin issue. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bigger deal to me to think about it in terms of, of the, the whole, the whole of society here. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that if our, even whether we remember them or not, I think our actions absolutely have meaning uh, because we don't, live in this world alone. We're not, uh, 
uh, walking through this in a vacuum of space and time. So uh, I think it puts a very selfish spin on Lenny to me. And it just, you know, when I start to view him that way, you know, because he's a very sympathetic character for most of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we are meant to feel that that's, that's kind of the, the point, right? We, we, we are in it with him. We are feeling sorry for him. Um, but when you step back from that and you look at him from the outside, knowing all of the truth and the details, you can see maybe Lenny's not that great of a guy either. Um, maybe mm-hmm. his actions are not that, maybe his motives and actions are not that, uh, admirable. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, and <clears throat> that's kind of what I was getting to earlier was by saying that's the duality that I face with, with Lenny is I, um, I start with feeling sorry for him and then I kind of detest him because in that moment at the end, that conversation with, with Teddy, you see his motives. I mean, you see him say, um, oh, where is it? He says, uh, do I, he's talking to himself. Do I lie to myself to be happy in your case, Teddy? I will. I mean, we see deception there. We see this self motive that it's it's really about his happiness. It's in that moment. It's not about his wife. It's not, I mean, in his own way, vengeance has become his thing. It's not about avenging his wife. It's really about just getting satisfaction from knowing that he can kill somebody. Um, mm-hmm. And while it's it, it's this twisted weird, it's this twisted motive, and I think that it kind of lends itself to, you know, it brought up another question in my head about this guy's condition. You know, is he morally responsible for things he's done, even if he can't remember them? I mean, the guy has, you know, he, if he's in a court of law and they say, did you do this? He goes, maybe I did. I don't remember it. Um, and I guess that gets kind of answered with, with Sammy Jenkins, uh, Jenkins, but, that was a question that I had, you know, leaving this viewing was going, you know, is he, is he off the hook? Does that get him off the hook? And does that kind of allow him to live in this kind of ambiguous moral playground that he's been living in for, you know, for two hours that we've seen him or for two days of, of this life that he's been living? You know, what do you think? Well, well, it doesn't get him off the hook to me. That's for darn sure. I mean, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't have any sympathy at all for a lack of, remembering something being an excuse for taking the actions in the first place. Now where I do have sympathy for Lenny is in the way that he is eventually shown to be manipulated and controlled Mm -hmm. and taken advantage of. That's where I have sympathy for him. Uh, And it's, it's, it's wonderful exploration of that moral gray territory um, of, you know, Jimmy says it, he says, you know, I'm doing this for you and a little bit for me, <laughs> you know, like why not? We, yeah. Yes. It's a drug deal too. We're making some money on the side, but I'm doing this because you have, you need to keep going. Um, <laughs> and so it becomes kind of gray there, but yeah. yeah, so that's where my sympathy falls. But when we're talking strictly like memory uh, or lack of a memory being any kind of excuse for having done an action in the first place, I don't, I don't think so at all. Right. Now that, yeah. that quote you mentioned, by the way, is like the next one that I want to talk about. <laughs> um, so it, it started with Teddy saying, so you lie to yourself to stay happy. You leave out a few details. Who cares? You don't want the truth, which sounds like a, a prestige <laughs> line waiting to happen. And Lenny, <laughs> Lenny responds and he says, we all lie to ourselves to be happy. 
Mm. And that, that was my next question to you is, do you think that that is true? Do we all lie to ourselves to be happy? Mm. Yeah, I think to an extent we do. Um, I think we, we fudge the reality of the world around us to kind of fit into our own ideas. And I mean, the rule for Nolan Month should be that we can refer back to movies that we've already covered <laughs> in its entirety. I think we have to, yeah. And and so that's the way I think, you know, I think I think Finch was that way in Insomnia, that the way in which he was able to justify the way he was living, the way in which he uh, went about just completely being okay with this murder, I think that that was his truth. His truth was preached to him internally so much. And so often that eventually he believed it. So, yeah, I think that he was lying to himself to be happy. Uh, and in that case, it was a very extreme way to be happy. But I think in some ways we do that. We, if we're in an unhappy relationship or an unhappy job, that we, that we, 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 we tell ourselves, oh, you know, it could be worse. I, I, I wouldn't have to have, you know, at least I have a job or, you know, at least I, I have this. When in reality, you know, we're not happy. We're, we're trying to kind of make up this world around us to sort of fit maybe a lower standard that we have uh, when it comes to, you know, how we're living, you know, that we're not living up to our full potential. And so we're just saying, well, you know, that's not for me. I can't, I don't need to do that or I'm not good enough to do that. So I'm okay living in this kind of mediocrity and I think in some ways that's how we lie. I mean, I think our happiness is so subjective that oftentimes we put bold-faced deception in our faces to to validate that, to validate who we are and where we are and kind of give us an out to not reach our full potential or not reach our full form of joy or happiness or whatever we call that. Wow. that's I, I have a hard time disagreeing with any of that. <laughs> I think that's uh, it's pretty well said. I, I, I would agree, like, wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, I, I do think we lie to ourselves, too. I, I I think we do it all the time. I think we do it in, in very – I think we do it in extreme cases um, from time to time. But I think we do it often in very minor day-to-day situations, um, whether it's, you know, this – uh, my using of the copier for the next 30 minutes isn't really going to affect anyone when we know full well that we're putting other people out of the use of the copier. I mean, th- mm. these are very simple mm-hmm. uh, things that happen uh, every single day. Um, I, I'm trying to think of other examples, you know, I'm going to take this parking spot that's closer to the front because, you know, I shouldn't have to get wet or I, I don't think it's really going to put anybody out. And then, we really know that, you know, ah, we, we, we don't need that. Maybe we should have left that for someone that has a, a higher need for that. And we, we tell ourselves oh. these little lies all the time. Oh, yeah. just I'm, I'm, Here's a great example. The other day, I went to Kroger to pick up like two or three things, and the parking lot was full. And I just straight up parked in the handicapped spot. because, And I told myself this. I said, you know what? I'm only going to be in here for two or three minutes. So... It's all good. I mean, what are the chances that somebody's going to need this handicapped parking spot? I mean, just like that, that right there. Like, it's all about me in that moment. So <laughs> about I'm, anything else. I'm podcasting with a felon is what you're telling me. Well, I did sneak my kid into a movie last summer. So, I mean, That's it's true. Just you are really going downhill, Patrick. <laughs> I don't know if this is, this is a bad trend. 
look, I trust our listeners and I trust their forgiveness and their grace uh-huh. on on me. So that's so nice. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't turn me in. Don't turn me in. <laughs> I do. I do think that we we lie to ourselves all the time, um, and and specifically in this case to be happy, um, mm. in order to remember or see those things in a certain way. Um, we lie to ourselves about our spouses or our, our significant others sometimes um, to try and just see the best <laughs> that we can, you know, uh, mm. to stay happy and, and not have to deal with some of the, the frustrations that we have in relationships or the hardships that, that they entail. It's easier to just try and force yourself to, to get through these things. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that that's something that's very true uh, that Lenny has said. Sometimes we don't want the truth. You know, we yeah. want to be fooled. Well, <laughs> Sorry. Like Jessa, we can't handle the truth. Oh, yeah. There we go. So the next quote uh, is one from the ending uh, that I want to discuss. And that's the movie closes with Lenny saying, we all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. I'm no different. Lenny's mirrors, in this case, are his memory device, his ability to, to make memories. So like, my question for us is, what sort of mirrors do we think people that, like us, with normal memories, rely on to remind ourselves who we are? Well, if we're going to believe what he said to, uh, to Teddy in the, in the diner, that memories are unreliable... And I think that's ironic that here's a guy who, you know, is all about, you know, he can't make new memories, but he, he's relying on this one moment up to the point where his wife was attacked to kind of m- motivate him. If if memories are unreliable, uh, specifically in testimony, but in general, let's let's use it as an excuse there. I would say that the experiences that we have and the relationships with each other really are what um, they remind us of who we are. Because, you know, using myself as as an example, you know, to you, I'm your co-host. I mean, yes, we're best friends, but, you know, just as an example, to you, I'm your co-host. To my wife, I'm her husband. To my son, I'm his father. And I have these roles that I play and those roles are only validated by the people around me. If I lived my life by myself, I would not be able to experience that kind of diversity of who I am. I wouldn't be who I am without the people that are in my life. And it's not necessarily because of the actions that I do. I mean, that's definitely part of it, but it's, it's those actions and the relationships that I have with people that define who I am and how I'm able to be a multitude of things. Cause I'm not just a co-host. I'm not just a father. I'm not just a husband. I am all these things and more. And all of those things have value not only to me, but to the people that they're connected to. And I think for, for us that have those memories, memories become almost like a, a sidebar for us. We're really more about, the experiences and the relationships with other people that help define us and make us of who we are. Those are our mirrors. Wow. Deep again. Um, (laughs) So I'm going to lighten that up a little and I'm going to say, I actually have two big mirrors that I know of 
One is my bathroom mirror. Uh, <laughs> that one reminds me every morning that I'm tired. And my cell phone acts as a mirror quite often when I'm snapping selfies. Uh, so that is always available to tell me who I am. But, you know, those those jokes aside, the one I was going to mention is actually, it's it's almost embarrassingly sad. And that is social media or art. I guess those are two very different things, but they kind of play the same role. Things that we put of ourselves out into the world. Um, I love that you brought up relationships, uh, which allows me, which I agree completely with, by the way, um, to bring, allow me to bring this up. But, you know, we can look back at an example, a letterboxed review of a movie and see it 10 years later. And it will remind me of my emotions and my feelings and the, the experience that I had at that time. And it will inform um, what maybe I think I'm like now. Uh, the same can be said with our art. If you're a painter or a musician or um, a podcaster, <laughs> you know, uh, these are these are things that go out into the world that you can then look back at and use to evaluate or see as you see what you're what you're like. I mean, I, I do this sometimes. I'll listen back to our episodes. I don't do it all the time, but it's always kind of fascinating to me and surreal to listen to myself talk. Because when I'm in the moment and we're having this conversation, it's just me talking to my best friend about something. And it's a, it's a way different thing when I listen to myself talk. And oh, yeah, it, absolutely. it gives me a different perspective on maybe the same exact thing that I already had a conversation about. It's, it's, it's wild how it does that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one way that we use mirrors as well is by um, you know going back to or you know, looking at the things that we've put out into the world and um, seeing them from kind of an outside of a body experience. Yeah. I think a great example of that is time hop. My wife loves to use time hop and, and post great. And even, even the other day, uh, Chad Hopkins over at Cinescope shot me a message on Facebook with a time hop that says, I love the Rocky franchise with, and he captured it by saying some things don't change. And that's a prime example of, quite literally a snapshot of, and that was seven years ago that he posted that, that I love the Rocky franchise. And so social media gives us the opportunity to get a textual uh, pictorial snapshot of where we were, where we are. Um, you know, I see a lot of people, you know, talking about, you know, the weight loss challenges that they're going on or that they've just finished up and, you know, social media is a great avenue for that because essentially mirrors, whatever they are, whether they're actual mirrors or whether they're metaphorical mirrors, they're, they're feedback. It's emotional, physical, uh, conversational feedback that we all get from all these different places and they help define who we are. Um, and I think as we think about that more memories, you know, you could, you could argue that they're equally a part of that identity but I think they're probably on the lesser scale than these other things because memories are not tangible. They're interpreted every time we think about something. Uh, when I was injured a few years ago in my running accident, my buddy John jokes with me. He says, every time he tells that story about me, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so what started out as a van hitting me has now turned into a semi-truck 
that literally ran off the highway to come after me. You know, it's, it's, and he jokes about that, but that's hilarious because I do the same thing, by the way. (laughs) I actually, actually the last telling, I think I had you being tracked down by a hitman. Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) because we want our stories to be more entertaining and whether through being facetious or not, our memories lend themselves to us being more dramatic because we want to sound more important than we actually are. And, uh, and I think that the true mirrors are those things that give us objectivity, whether they're through social media and and the texts that we send or through the relationships that we build. I think those are the real mirrors, the actual mirrors that we, that we see because they give us an accurate depiction of who we are. Yeah. And you know, you said something interesting in that, in that paragraph there about use the, use this phrase, you said memory as a foundation for identity. And I think you kind of hit on something there that's very important. Um, I think that that is a huge piece of what this film is about. You know, that is Lenny is his version of his memories, which of course for him is the written down uh, things on his body, the tattoos, the notes, the pictures, the things that he keeps physically to, to have these memories but even the even the longer term memories that he goes back to, uh, that he can remember up until the accident of his wife, and for us, I think it's absolutely the same. You know, I think of I think of how I look back in my life to, you know, maybe happier times or heck, it doesn't have to be happier times; it could be even worse times. But I, I can I can think back to specific memories and and how I felt at that moment. And if I'm not careful, I very well can let that I define who I am. Uh, and I can allow it to creep into the reality of where I'm at now in my life and impact my ability to live in the moment, which um, I think is what we kind of need a balance for. We need to be able to do that. It's There's nothing wrong with memory. There's nothing inherently bad about being able to think back and to your wife being pregnant and, you know, having your arms wrapped around her and seeing her belly out to here, you know, long after you're ever going to have any more kids. Those are great memories. Those are things that define who you were at the moment as a newlywed who was having a baby and with a wife who was pregnant. Like that's, that's the definition of who you were in that moment, but it's not necessarily the definition of who you are present. Yeah. And that's one thing I love about um, Joe Pantoliano, his character of Teddy, is that he becomes kind of the voice in this really sadistic way of all of us when he says twice, actually, he says, that's who you were. This is who you are now. And he, he really emphasizes that with Lenny. He says, you're not that guy anymore. You're not the married guy who's a claims investigator. You're, you're holding on to this thing, and this thing is what's driving you. And you know, as an extension that, I'm going, yeah, and that's wrong. Um, despite what you can or cannot do with your, with your brain and creating new memories, you're not that guy anymore. You know, your wife's dead. She's gone. And you don't have that job anymore. That's not what makes you who you are. And and I think that's kind of a theme that 
that Nolan leaves us with is, you know, what are we holding on to? What is it that defines us that maybe we shouldn't anymore? Should we continue to move forward? And what are the things that actually matter? I love that, that, that Teddy says he, he starts describing, this is at that last scene. He starts describing, um, the whole bit. And he says, dude, this, these are my words. He doesn't say dude, obviously, but he says, no conspiracy, just bad luck. He talks about the, the, the murder, you know, and how, you know, Lenny wants it to be this elaborate conspiracy that this puzzle to be solved. And Teddy's like, it's not that it's just straightforward. Guy came into your house cause he thought that there were drugs there and he got the wrong house or whatever it was that he said that it was just bad, bad luck. Yeah. Bad luck. And that's a real gut punch of a moment. It is. It really is. Because I think that's what I think we try to do that. Sometimes we try to make something out of nothing, you know, jokingly go back to the story of my injury. You know, there's a part of me that wants to make it bigger than it is, but it really was just that I was hit by a van, which yes, that's dramatic, but (laughs) (laughs) I was not run over. I didn't lose like half my face to, you know, road rash or whatever. I mean, these are, (laughs) I had injuries. Are you a cyborg, Patrick? I am. (laughs) I can neither confirm or deny that. but (laughs) (laughs) But the truth is I could have let that moment be a defining moment for me and stayed there. I could have just completely fallen into this place of sorrow and said, I'm not going to do physical therapy. I'll never be able to run again. I'll never be able to walk again. I chose not to. I can now walk and I can now run. (laughs) And my leg does not hurt at all. I mean, it's just, you know, these, these things, these, these decisions that we make to not live in the past or not stay in one place, but to constantly be moving forward. I think that's the trouble with, with Lenny's character is he physically cannot because of the thing that he's relying on. And that's the memory of his wife. And I almost wonder if he had not lost his memories, if his wife had been tragically killed and they never found the guy, this would be the exact same life that he'd be living Mm -hmm. constantly trying to find the guy constantly in a state of anger and frustration. And he even says that. He says, not having these memories, I wake up, you know, not being able to keep these memories. I wake up and I say, you know, I'm angry for unknown reasons. I'm sad for unknown reasons. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> there are days when I feel like that. Yeah. And I have a I have I don't have that condition. And I don't think what he's saying is untrue about most of us that the results of tragedy in our lives lend themselves to days when we wake up and we're just completely wrecked. We're completely sad. We're completely upset and angry. And we don't know, we can't pinpoint it. It's, it's because it's a bunch of things. And so I think in his way, uh, what Nolan's done is he's just created a character who, you know, he doesn't, you know, he can make an excuse by saying it's these new memories that he can't make, but it's really an extension of who we are. I agree. You know, it's, it, it's really tough for him because he's, he is, he, he, well, it's tough for us watching him um, because we do get sucked up in this sympathetic zone. And I think it's, it's entirely because he's, you know, this, this buzzword or this phrase uh, of an unreliable narrator because what Lenny, Lenny is not telling us the truth and it's really not necessarily to any fault of his own. Um, but 
you know, he talks about how memories can change, but facts can't. It's one of my favorite, Mm -hmm. favorite lines or, or pieces of dialogue in the movie where he's discussing how, you know, my memory can change the color of a room or the sound of laughter or, or, Mm -hmm. or something. Um, but, uh, you know, I, a picture can't change that. Facts cannot change those things. Um, and it, and it makes me wonder, you know, is his system more reliable and better than memory in some ways, <laughs> or is it not? Because, you know, ultimately Lenny is manipulated and controlled and, and these things, mm-hmm. like we, we learn that he is not in control the way that he right. thinks he is. And it's very right. dis- disturbing. Yeah. Um, but I guess, I guess that's really my last question to you is what do you think about that? Do you think that his system is better than memory, worse than memory? I think his system makes his world more concrete for him. That's cheap. But it, I don't mean him, obviously. No, but but it's true. <laughs> I mean, if no, look, I know. I, know. I have I, I can make every opportunity to take pictures of things and manipulate the situation. I mean, if I mean, look at all look look at all the pictures that he took of the people. So he's got a picture of Teddy who actually wanted to pose for his picture and makes this cheesy grin. So when we see Teddy, we're thinking, hey, he seems like a nice guy. And because he doesn't know any better, Lenny doesn't know any better, that's all he assumes. He has to write that down. Don't believe his lies. Don't believe his lies. Um, Carrie Ann Moss's character, who's just, gosh, she's amazing in this. Um, Natalie, you know, you don't even get to see her face. So you're making an interpretation based on that picture. Is she mysterious? Does she not want her picture taken? You know, what was happening? Because, yeah, you can take a picture. You can write something down. But even that can be interpreted differently. So I think for him, the facts become facts for his world and nobody else's. They might bleed into others. But I think his are just – to answer your question, I think I think his system is just as unreliable because it's biased. There you go. There you go. That was a great ending line. And I completely agree with that. It's biased and i think it's just as biased as our memories are because we want to remember things a certain way and it's it goes back to that ties back into that that conversation about lying to ourselves to be happy now this isn't what we always do but if in in lenny's situation in lenny's case in our real lives when we're facing something of uh, of this nature not not our spouse being murdered hopefully um but that's what we do. We twist and we, we tweak to try and remember things. I can tell you, I've mentioned it before. I'm twice divorced. I probably have some memories that are not quite accurate that are much better than those events really were. And then conversely, I probably also have some that are way worse. I probably remember some things in a lot different way now because of the effect of events that have occurred since then, it has changed my memory of what that event was like in the moment. Mm, um, yeah. and, I, and so I do. I think they're very similar, and they, we experience this bias in both forms. Yeah. Well, you got anything else, or are you ready to uh, connect? Let's, let's connect, man. I feel like we can land the, land the plane here. Land the plane. All right, land let's plane. land the plane. Well, okay. I will go first um, because okay. I think my connecting point ties into something that we were talking about 
uh, with Lenny being an unreliable narrator. So the scenes that rock me the most emotionally in this film are when Natalie, Carrie Ann Moss, as you mentioned, you said she was amazing in this, and I would agree from an acting standpoint, not from a character standpoint. Yes, um, yes. She's <laughs> I mean, pretty yeah. awful from a character <laughs> standpoint. But um, it, when this film, when my scene is when Natalie storms into the house, uh, she's just had a, a conversation with Lenny, and she comes storming into the house is what we start the scene with. She carefully hides all of the pins and provokes Leonard to hit her. And it's, it's brutal. Um, it, the way in which she provokes him is just, it's awful to behold. It's awful to watch her verbally berate, just berate him and just say the things that she says to him. It's, it's, ugh, it's, it's evil. But then she, she then walks out to her car and she sits there while Lenny is desperately searching for a pen to write this down. Then the scene ends, right? And we go to the next scene. And it's the beginning of the one before. And here we see Natalie is waited patiently in the car while his memory has faded. And she comes into the house with this big bloody lip and she starts mm. begging him for help and claiming that Dodd has hurt her. And so it's in this interaction to me that we fully understand just how easily he can be manipulated. This is the moment for me when I realize fully that Leonard is not a reliable narrator. He's manipulated. He's controlled. We see how much, um, how unreliable he's been this whole time. And then it's like we're still rooting for him because we've we've kind of assumed everything that he says is the truth up until this point. So we've believed, along with him, in his system. We believe that it works. We've we've seen it, and we we're like, okay, the notes work. And now that facade is being ripped away very painfully in these two scenes. And for me, it's just incredibly tragic. It's heartbreaking to see him lied to. It's heartbreaking to see him hurt the way he is. And it, it's like his entire truth is now something completely different. It's just been destroyed. And so it really is emotionally impactful for me. Uh, it's I get choked up every single time. I know it's coming. Um, I get angry every single time. Uh, makes me wish I was the one that gave her the bloody lip sometimes. <laughs> um you know, and this scene, it also serves as great foreshadowing to me for the ending of the movie uh, when the ultimate reveal is that, you know, his system is created by him <laughs> falsely to keep this going. And I just think it's stellar filmmaking. It's stellar acting. Um, it's that emotional gut punch that is what we remember in a movie when we walk out of it for days on end. And it never loses its impact on me no matter how many times I see it. So that's that's the moments in this movie that I will always connect with most, I think. I I actually when I watch this movie, I it's usually a 50/50 chance that I skip that scene just because of how terrible she is to him. Awful. And again watching this, you know, for the purposes of this episode, I began to think about how she was earlier in the film slash later in the narrative and how she, um, I think she, I think there was some truth to what he said when he wrote down, you know, she will help you out of pity. She has lost someone as well. And I think that in some ways, (laughs) even though he's the one that 
killed Jimmy. I think there's a little piece of her that I have a little bit of sympathy for, especially when they're in that scene in the diner and she says, you know, we're both survivors. I mean, I think it, it, it's a stretch. I know it is, but um, there's, and it's a small piece, but there's, I had a little bit of sympathy for her, but not enough to overturn the fact that she's just mean and she's just bad. <laughs> yeah. Bad, bad people. Yeah. What about you? Well, that was actually in the running for, for my connecting point just because it was so intense and so just heart gripping. But this viewing, there was a fantastic scene um, that stood out and it, it's, it's the moment when, or the moments when he is, um, he's burning his wife's stuff. Like he's burning her. Um, I think it's a teddy bear maybe. Can't remember if that, but, uh, on a clock and oh, no, a brush. And then he picks up this book, this tattered, you know, book that looks like it's been worn and read like 50 times. And, you know, he holds it and he smells it. And then, you know, we cut back to her reading this book in bed. You know, it's a, it's a past memory. And we hear him say, you know, how can you read that again? And she goes, it's good. And he says, but you've read it like a thousand times. And she goes, I enjoy it. <laughs> and then he says this really wonderful thing. because I always thought the pleasure of a book was about knowing what happens next. And she says, don't be a jerk. She didn't say jerk, something else. But I'm not reading it to annoy you. I'm reading to enjoy it. And I think this scene says so much in that it emphasizes the value of the journey rather than the result, something Lenny ends up living not caring who John G actually is just as long as he has a John G to go after. Um, and even the movie itself challenges this by, by showing us what happens next at the very beginning. Yet we're intrigued because as we go backwards, we're giving more information that make the journey just as valuable. And I think that's why you and I and other people like watching this movie over and over again. We know what happens. We know what happens at the very beginning, mm-hmm. but it's not about that. It's about the journey and it's about, experiencing the emotion with these characters and and i think his wife knows that and for her reading that book was about knowing the characters and about enjoying the journey with them she wasn't concerned about the event after event after event that was going on um he knows uh what happens next but for her the memories of that experience matter more than the result of the story itself and I think that's kind of a microcosm of what Nolan's trying to say here. One of the many things he's trying to say in this movie is that our life is a journey and we should, you know, we should like Ferris Bueller says, if you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. And the fact is we, I think Lenny misses it because he's got, you know, he's got this condition. We don't have this condition, so we have no excuse to miss it. And we do because we choose to pause our lives to stay in a place that is comfortable at the time but isn't real and we refuse to move forward and enjoy the moments good and bad that help make us who we are they are they're the mirrors of our lives and and i just thought that scene uh and, and georgia fox who plays his wife she's just adorable i love she was in the West Wing for a, a couple of seasons, um, and that's when I first got introduced to her as an actress. She was also in CSI, and, and that's she's just I a lot of from. fun. Yeah, yeah. And so, seeing this, 
so seeing her in this in that role was just um, lots of fun but that was my connecting point so that's great man and you know it's interesting the thing I was pulling out of this while you were going over this scene it reminds me of something in the prestige episode that we talked about and listeners if you've seen prestige and you haven't listened to our prestige episode you can find that in our catalog um, or iTunes or wherever you listen to our podcast. Um, but it's a, it's a good one as well. We, we covered it back, I think in November and that's the only reason you're not finding it as part of Nolan month is because we, we have such high value for that, that it got done before this one, uh, this Nolan month came about. Stands alone. It stands it really alone. really does. But in that episode, I was talking about how it's almost a m- metaphor. Nolan is for Nolan's filmmaking. I think, I think it's very meta some of the things mm-hmm. that he, he does with that film and the ending. And I think that this conversation is also a little bit meta about his films. I think mm-hmm. he's saying, you mentioned him saying that to us about life and I agree, but I also think he's saying, if I read this as him talking, an audience says, I always thought the pleasure of a movie was about knowing what happens next. And Nolan saying, I'm not making this movie to annoy you. I'm making this movie for you to enjoy it. Yeah. And I think that's his point. And also, you know, but you've read it like a thousand times. Nolan is wanting to make us a movie that we can watch a thousand times, even though we know the ending and he's masterfully done that. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's a very meta reading that I get out of this particular conversation, which I think is awesome. And it just connects me more to him and makes me love his films and, and Memento in general, uh, or specifically even more. So yeah, good stuff. Good stuff, man. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up then and call it quits. What, uh, where can people, I guess not what, where can people find you if they want to talk to you further about your thoughts on Memento or anything in general? Yeah, I would love to engage with, uh, with you guys in the social media world about this movie or any for that matter, this one obviously is one that um, is a favorite of mine. And uh, but you can find me on uh, on Twitter at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm also at Facebook.com slash Shoeless Patch. And you can check out um, a little bit more if you want to see a, a, a mirror of who I am. You can find that at ThisIsPatch.com, the website that I have a lot of my um, pieces and parts of who I am on there. Um, I am excited about... Next week, I believe we are moving forward with um, one of the big entries of Nolan Verse, which is the Dark Knight, the middle movie of the Batman trilogy that uh, I think most people, not all, but most people will tell you of the three, it's the most memorable for a number of reasons. And so I'm excited to dive into this as much as... uh, as much as we have these first two and to see it from a, from this kind of fresh perspective uh, outside of it being a superhero movie. Yeah. I think we've always kind of taken that approach to the way we, we personally look at Nolan movies and we talk about amongst ourselves, but it's going to be fun to input, you know, in invoke our specific format for the show while we watch it this time around uh, and see how that changes <laughs> the way that we view the film and what we pull yeah. out of it. I know, I know I'm going to personally be trying to watch uh, Batman begins and also the dark Knight rises. I'm going to try to do the whole trilogy this week before we record. Um, so I know you may not have time to do that. Probably depends a lot on your son's health, but 
uh, for anybody listening out there to this episode uh, prior to or, or in real time, I guess, um, I'd love to have you watch along with me and, and tell me what you're thinking about the other two films as well as you go. Uh, you can find me to do that all over the place at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Uh, you can also find me tweeting from the Feelin' Film Twitter quite often. Uh, that's at Feelin' Film. You can find our Facebook group there on Facebook. Wow, that was redundant. Um, Facebook page and a Facebook group. Um, you can get links to that from the show notes or also from our website at feelinfilm.com. So let me, uh, before we wrap things up, because uh, I have this condition, like Lenny, I did forget to mention the uh, hashtag feel this film. Ooh, people coming. have been using it, Patrick. I know. I'm so excited about this. And uh, I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, getting a chance to to send those out. But uh, yeah, hashtag feel this film. If there's a movie that you want us to cover in the next couple of months, we're going to be sending out some uh, some voting uh, what you, apparatuses or some voting choices for some of these uh, some of these movies that you guys have been shooting to us. And the the um, I think two times are we doing this twice? In the next uh, I think of we months? have we have two planned, I believe in. February and March. I don't know if it goes into March or not, but at least they start in February right after Nolan month. That's right. Yeah. One in February, I think and one in March. And so we're going to be uh, getting you guys more information about that, but keep throwing out that hashtag with movies that you would like to have us cover. Um, that gets us more connected with you, which we love. And, uh, obviously for a guy like me in the case of how to train your dragon, it gets me on the hot seat to watch that movie. So, um, if anything, it gets us more exposure to movies that we haven't seen. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pumped. I, I love seeing those uh, nominations roll in. And honestly, it's kind of exciting to not have control over picking the movie. We get, we get to do all the ones we want to do anyway. So it's going to be a lot of fun to let the community and let the people that are most engaging uh, with us in that Facebook group come and vote and, and choose those movies. So that's the other piece of this. You can make your fill this film nominations on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, but if you want to be a part of the voting feel and film crew, you need to join the Facebook group. Uh, so you can do that anytime before that occurs in the next month or so, but, uh, come do that, be a part of it. That's where that process will take place. You got anything else, buddy, man? I think I'm all talked out tonight. You are, you gonna, I, you gonna, for, are you going to forget that here in about five minutes? Hope you write There's it. a good chance. Write it down. There's write good, it down. That I wrote it down. It's it's. <laughs> you're pleasantly you're pleasantly uh, you know happy with the episode. Just write that down right now. Pleasantly happy. Don't believe his lies. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks everybody for being here with us. It's been fun. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Until next time, as we always say, stay positive and keep feeling filmed.